here, Betty. You're going to be in the movies. And the person interviewing me wrote those words down, looked up from his piece of paper and said to me, so do you think we're going to like that? Yeah, I, I do what I do today, Kathy, because of a fourth grade field trip. No credit to me, just me fumbling along with what I knew at the time and the dog being very forgiving of my mistakes. I talk a lot about how the prepositions of conversation are broken. What's that mean? Well, what I mean is we talk at people. We talk about people. There's not a whole lot of talking with or to. Part of that, at least from where I stand, is that people are just too afraid to be themselves, to just be. That is not the case with today's guest. Sarah Lacey is, without question, one of the most, actually probably the most, unabashedly unvarnished people I know. You never need to wonder what she's thinking. You never have to guess where you stand. In the time I've known Sarah, she's gone from a top journalist in Silicon Valley to author to entrepreneur. And through it all, she's never wavered on one thing, being herself. There's power to that. There's also a price, and Sarah has paid it. And yet, she remains standing when so many others, if not most others, would have scampered away or shriveled up. My only regret about this conversation is that it wasn't longer. I could talk to Sarah all day. No topics are off limits. She shows up fully, and the result is a rich and deep discussion that meanders from the power of women to the dangers of the patriarchy to the importance of truth and her amazing kids. She also has a dog named Radish. And ironically, that's just about the only thing we don't talk about. Guess I'll have to have her back another time. But for now, I'm Kathy Brooks, and this is Talk Unleashed. When it comes to someone who follows their passion and who uh, unabashedly pursues, well, pretty much everything in her life, my next guest, Sarah Lacey, hits on all of those marks. Sarah, welcome to the Unleashed Thank Leadership Summit, of course. So Sarah Lacey, there are um, many titles and descriptors that could be used uh, to describe you. A longtime journalist, uh, that's how you and I first met. You were working, I think, for Business Week at the time, covering mm -hmm. Silicon Valley in Silicon Valley. Um, entrepreneur, uh, you had, uh, you know, Pando Daily. You've been a media company owner. You have been an entrepreneur because you are an entrepreneur. Um, you are, uh, some people in Silicon Valley might call you a bit of a gadfly <laughs> up in their business, um, which caused some friction in your world that you navigated. And, you know, uh, several years ago, you said, I'm done. I'm done with this. I'm the, the, the sexual harassment, the misogyny, the bullshit, I'm done. And thus became I'm very excited. It was the chairman mom, but now this week you you changed the name of the company is now chairman me. So let's start for the uninitiated, uninitiated what that is. So um, 
so chairman, well, let me take a step back and tell you what chairman mom was first. This is how they always tell you not to do it. But as a media person, a storyteller, I have to always give like the exposition. I can't help myself. Uh, so I started chairman mom because um, I felt like uh, the patriarchy had tricked us into thinking that motherhood was a weakness instead of a strength. And if you look at like the, the Federal Reserve Bank has data showing that working mothers are the most productive members of the workforce full stop. I mean, there's and that's like one data set of a thousand. Um, there's so many amazing superpowers that I felt like becoming a mother unlocked for me. And yet I had bought, I'd put it off till you know, pretty late in my life in terms of, you know, how they talk about you know, childbearing years, um, because I believed all of the bullshit that it would make me weaker, it would make me more distracted, it would make me worse in my job, I would lose all ambition, and all the opposite of that has happened. And so, you know, I really wanted to um, have a place for people who see motherhood and working, working mom in particular, as an incredibly badass thing that's been part of their superpower. Um, to, to lean into that and meet other people and basically create a quarter of the internet that's opposite of the internet for, for women everywhere else where there's no trolling and there's no judgment and you can be anonymous when you have to, but that doesn't mean you're opening yourself up to abuse. Um, so we started that and then in 2020, um, obviously our core user who we kind of built this with, with this person in mind was, you know, women were set back more than 50 years of progress in the work market. And those women lost their entire safety net at home. And uh, so we went really deep with our users over the, you know, the whole time um, of the pandemic to figure out what they needed. And that led us to this you know, incredible asynchronous online course business um, that you know, the, the person who led our last funding round said was more like a soul cycle than you to me. You know, it really is a place where people find people and find solidarity and find real answers to hard questions without the sugarcoating of, oh, this is all just fine because we're all pretending to be men. Um, so we teach, you know, courses from, you know, everything around, um, you know, we, we have one right now on witchcraft to, um, you know, how to, how to raise a round of capital. Um, so it's all, but it's, our, we sell it being in that, that messy fit in the middle between work and life, because a lot of people want to solve your life issues and a lot of people want to solve your work issues. But what derails women from living the life they want to lead is that, that messy stuff in the middle. And so we just don't shy away from that and kind of go right at it. Um, but the reason that we rebranded was before our course business, about 30% of our audience weren't moms, because it turns out a lot of people face the same problems that, you know, we built this to solve for working mothers. And increasingly, um, you know, that was even getting more extreme with our course business. I mean, we have a course right now on how to um, become a, how to go from an author to a published author and half of the people in that course are men. Um, so, you know, we're, we're in no way uh, turning our back on working moms, but we think what we're doing is a massive, massive social movement to create a better corner of the world than what is out there now. And, you know, we need lots of people in that, not just working moms. When you and I reconnected, so we've remained connected over the years anyway, for a period of time when I first moved to Las Vegas, you were in and out of Las Vegas also. Um, of course, coming up on a year ago after the very untimely passing of a, a mutual friend of ours, I had reached out to you. I'd seen you quoted in a local paper. I reached out to you. And as um, we were talking and I was talking to you about kind of where I was in that moment with everything that was going on, you said, we're, we're about to start this course, you know, 
you know, that, you know, the chairman mom at the time is doing this six month course called the sisterhood project. You should take it. And I said, well, first of all, the chairman mom, uh, while I am an entrepreneur, I am the owner of my own business. Uh, and while I do have dogs, I am very clear that they are not my fur babies. So I'm very clear that they are beings other than things to which I've given birth, though I do care for them. Um, I don't know that it's going to be a fit for me. And you said, do it anyway. It's a fit for you. And you've never led me wrong. So I did it. And that six month, I credit that course, which dug into everything from, you know, Con conflict between sisters, blood sisters, uh, sororities, women in finance, women in sports, internalized misogyny, classism, racism, nuns. I mean, it literally dove into over the course of social justice, nuns, social, not excuse nuns. me, social justice nuns. They're obviously, uh, <laughs> which makes them a little more scary to me, but in a, in a good sort of way. Um, this idea of, of, really being the chairman of your life, you know, was something that was very clear and that the women with an X, so women identified, that was another thing that was very clear to me in the different cohorts I was in and the different courses and the different working groups and the different office hours was that, you know, whether it is you know, gay, straight, bisexual, transgender, uh, women identified um, and, and really a place where open conversations could happen in a really safe way where that concept of women as crabs in a bucket, you know, you can't get out of here because if you get out of here, it means my failure, that you're going to be climbing out of here on my back and that, you know, I'm not going to allow that to happen. Um, it was really devoid from the conversation in this group. How as, as a leader, you have a great team of people around you. You have great, you know, you know, co-conspirators, if you will, who, who drive this bus with you. Was there a conversation on the front end about what you were intending? Was it something that organically developed? I mean, how, how did this really evolve in the way that it has? And how do you feel that your leadership is what helps it continue to be that way? Yeah, that's a bit. First of all, thank you for all the kind words. You were such an important part of that of that program, and it really was stunning the impact that it had on so many people's lives. Uh, I mean, there's people who found whole new careers, whole new life's work, partners they've gone into business with, new jobs, best friends. It was really, really dramatic, um, and it was so exciting that you were part of the first one. Um, so I think you know, really, like Chairman Mom, first of all, start out from a point of view of. I don't think women wake up in the morning wanting to tear other women down. I think we get baited into it by society. And I think that's gotten exacerbated with ad-based social media. Um, and we, we just felt like that, you know, there was a view in Silicon Valley and in the startup world that if you ever put women in an online community, they would fight. And I didn't believe that. I think you want us to fight because then we make more money for you when we fight. Um, and we don't, gain power when we fight and you don't want to give up power. So that was sort of our contrarian idea at the beginning. You know, I think what that's evolved into as our business has evolved is, you know, this, this belief that should not be radical, but is radical. And I think it's radical in how simple it is. We believe that every woman should be living the life she wants to live. And think about that from the point of view of our society. We're not even a society where we're going to have autonomy over our own bodies, much less our lives. Um, and you know, if that if that if that means you want to organize PTA fundraisers, if that means that you know 
you want to focus on your home and the life you're giving your children and providing um, you know, the safest, most nurturing environment for them. Like, I think that's all incredible, but that should be what you choose. And until we live in a world where every woman has the right to live the life she chooses, I think our work is not finished. And so if you look at everything that we've built from our sort of judgment-free online forums to our, you know, our one-on-one pick your brain, but pay someone to pick their brain platform, um, which is called NeedHop that we sort of built out of the chairman. It was kind of a skunk works chairman mom thing that we just rolled back in. Or, you know, it's our courses. It's like, we are basically like, I like to view myself as like the Mr. Rourke of this community. Um, For those who are also as old as me and watched Fantasy Island growing up, like, I want you to tell me what life it is you want to lead. And then what are all the pieces of what we've built? What are the pieces of my personal network? What are all of the pieces of every, the, the 10,000 women in our network, their personal networks? How do we all bring this together to give you the life you want to live? And I think that's what sets us apart. I think there's a lot of communities, certainly most things that have mom in the name, really aren't focused on the mom, ironically. They're focused on the kids. They're focused on the spouse. They're maybe focused on your boss and you are their user, but you're not their customer. And you're a conduit through which they're trying to serve all those people. And your job is to serve all those people. I think the reason that even before our name change, we had so much of our audience who weren't moms is because we're focused on you. Like with all due respect to those other people, they're great. They can live happy and fulfilled lives when you have a happy and fulfilled life. And, um, you know, that makes it, I think that's, that's, what makes it very different than, you know, your typical sort of Sheryl Sandberg white lady feminism, which is about let's play with the rules so we can get invited to the club and not disrupt the club. You know, I think it makes it very different um, than, you know, other mom things, which are like, you had a C-section, you had a C-section, y'all should be friends. Like, I just think we are very whole self in a way, you know, and that's the messiness and that's, you know, and that's the beauty and that's, you know, it, it's all the things. And we just don't live in a world that not only allows, it celebrates women being full self. It also makes it like an incredibly fun job and by far the best job I've ever had. Like in that sisterhood cohort, there was a ninja. There was a woman raising goats and making artisanal feta. There was a woman who had had an incredible career as a doctor who was like holding up on a farm in Maine, mining Bitcoin. Like the level of things women were doing in that, that, community of 70 women who did that six-month project together were so incredible. And when I talk to people about it, they're like, how did you find these women? And it's like, all women are like that. We just whittle them away to what we need them to be in that room they're in. And we just gave them the pure expansiveness to, to, to run in the directions that they wanted to run. And, and how do we give you, you know, the glass of Gatorade to keep going faster? You know, you just, something you said just really landed, you talk about how society whittles us away to an expectation of what we're supposed to um, be based on an expectation of where we're from, the school we went to, how we dress, and what, what we do for a living and, and, what, and what that expectation is. And so sense of self, the thing that comes up for me with that is sense of self, self-worth, self-esteem feeling okay in my own skin, right? And today's society is, um, I mean, I think we were really the generation of the 
kind of self-indulged, like you can do anything you want and you're amazing. And then our generation gave spawn to another generation, your children excluded from this because they're remarkable beings. But you and I both know that there's an entire generation spawned of, you know, over entitled, overindulged, you know, think they can show up for work and then ask for a bonus because they deserve it. Um, yeah, I think I just became the, hey, kids, get off my lawn. I know, you are in that so okay boomers right now. I'm as okay. No, I'd say it's not true. But the I guess the But no, it's true. Gonna, this like this is the thing I feel like I should just go get a cookie and curl up in a corner no, or something. But, like, but I guess the point but, but here's the thing. The point I'm trying the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm trying to make is that you know, we live in this world where the silos of information that we're shoved into based on the algorithms of stuff, like I look for an article. I get that article and then I start getting served stuff that's the same topic through the same filter. I'm in my silo. You know, I'm told to talk at and about people rather than with and to them. You know, that there's a lot of righteous behavior, you know, self-righteous indignation as opposed to like the righteous anger of someone like a Martin Luther King. And like, how do we get into these groups that are self-empowering without that group then becoming a, yeah, let's go get them, mm-hmm. you know, because that's also not the answer. Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's a really interesting conversation. And I think one of the ways we get there is by trying to do the opposite of what social media did, which is put us in like filter bubbles. And what I was going to say when you're, you know, very, being very get off my lawn, I, I'm laughing because I am totally the same way as a Gen X person. I come from the bias of like, I had to pay my dues and like all of that. But, you know, what I've really learned from the millennials in my universe and in our company and in our community is that maybe like our generation should have had some of that entitlement. Maybe what I'm kind of reacting to is that I did put up with a lot of bullshit in the name of paying my dues instead of being like, no, you should respect me more than this. And like, I think if we get like paid leave in this country, I think if we get universal maternal health care. I think it's going to be that generation that drives it because they're not a pay their dues generation and settle for crumbs generation. And so I think that's sort of an example of what I mean when it's like getting out of these filter bubbles and recognizing the universality of our humanity versus being a a product that's divided in order to sell people more products and ads. I think that's the antidote to it. And that's really what we tried to do starting with Sisterhood Project is, you know, it was very, it was coming out of, you know, everything that happened in 2020. And it was, you know, really like, how do we build real interracial sisterhood? Like we can no longer have this like white lady performative feminism that's driving all these movements or in the case of Me Too, co-opting and taking credit for a lot of these movements. And, um, you know, how do we break down a lot of those barriers so that, you know, we can, we can connect with those other you know, communities. And one of the things I'm so excited about that I got from being part of that project is how much more diverse in every way my immediate friend circle is now and how that makes me think of the world in a different way. And I think, you know, leveraging off that, we're, we're the course we're building right now um, is about anti-bias parenting. And it's looking at it from the point of view of like, if you have, you know, white, cisgendered, able-bodied children, how do you have the conversations with them that, you know, the rest of us are having to have with our children so that your kids can be allies to our kids. Because there comes a point where, you know, I have a transgender child, you know, I can only protect my child so much in the world. I need everyone else's kids 
to help protect my child. Adamika, my you know sort of partner in crime who did the sisterhood project with me in this course, has two black sons in Oakland. How do how do I make sure my kids are going to be allies for her kids and keep her kids safe in the world? And so it's like really passing on a lot of those things that we all got from the sisterhood program consciously and making it something our families are doing together um, as a family-based project. And it's just, to me, that's how we get away from all of this. And that's how we get out of this, you know, yeah, let's go get them. Because like, who is the let, who's the us and let's, and who's the them and who you're going to get? Mm-hmm. You said something before that also landed around um, paying dues, you know, a generation that, you know, is less about the paying of dues and, and accepting of crumbs. I don't, I don't necessarily think those two things are tied completely in that I think there is a certain value to having some grounding in experience and knowledge that the way paying dues was passed to me when I was being educated at, you know, the feet of journalists who had been around the block a couple of times, you know, newsrooms were still smoky and there were still manual typewriters mm-hmm. when I got there. Whiskey in desk drawers. And, right. Whiskey <laughs> in the desk drawers, all the whole Definitely nine yards. That. And well, for people who can enjoy those sorts of things, it would be a very well, bad even, thing were I to for choose people it. who can choose it, maybe not in the workplace. Your maybe not drawer. such a good idea. Maybe not in the <laughs> desk drawer. But the point being that, um, that I was never made to feel less than because I didn't know, but it was made very clear to me that because I didn't know they were going to teach, that they were going to let me make my own mistakes, but there were going to be guardrails on that so that I didn't make any colossal mistakes that would be factually inaccurate information going out or poorly produced content going out or, you know, the, the, uh, a, a, you know, guest that was being interviewed or a source for a story being burned or like that, that there were, that the guardrails were there for the integrity of the work. Mm -hmm. And I feel like somewhere along the line, that idea of paying dues meant slave labor. I'm going to treat you like shit and you're going to like it and you're going to do what I say because I've been here five years longer than you and I know better. And that I categorically agree with you that that's not the case. I feel like the world has become this and maybe it's always been this way and it's just gotten more polarized that it's a this way or that way with no gray area. And I think as we all know that life is all about gray area and there's very little that is completely cleanly black and white. So as, as leaders today, so, I mean, I look at the, at the community that's been created and, you know, a community is created, created based on the leadership that starts as the example that's led, right? It's the example that's put out. So when you think about the ways that you navigate your own sense of being in the world, I mean, you are unabashedly yourself and you have been since the day that I met you. You say what's on your mind. You're very, very direct, very forthright. Um, You know, a real journalist with a capital J when I, you know, when I first met you. Um, And it has served you and it has also put you in some pretty perilous situations over the years. And yet you refuse to be, you are undaunted by it. I can imagine though, that even in the undauntedness of your existence, that there have to have been moments along the way where you were like, what the actual fuck is happening right now? Yeah, I mean, I've had my life threatened 
not not once, not twice, not three times. I mean, <laughs> I've had some, um, you know, I, it's so funny. I think my mom would probably tell you that I've been this way, not just since you've met me, but since I came out of the womb. And I think, I don't know, I don't totally know why, but for some reason growing up as um, a girl in the South, it, it still didn't get beat out of me. But I heard many people saying to, you know, me or other women, you know, that mouth is going to get you in a lot of trouble one day. I mean, I do feel like my mouth has gotten my life threatened many times um, and has put me in a lot of like really real danger, but also career danger. And also, you know, it's just sort of general, you know, <laughs> pissed people off and made me a lot of enemies. But it's also why I'm, you know, part of the, you know, 2% of venture capital that goes to female CEOs. It's also why I've written three best-selling books. It's also why, you know, I own two houses in California as someone who was just a writer, like something that I never thought would be attainable based on what my, my career was. Um, I think if, if you are a woman, and I think this goes triply and doubly for, you know, any other intersexual marginalized group, um, the world is going to constantly tell you you're too much of something for someone. And I think the mistake is ever starting to listen to that because you will, no matter how much you whittle yourself down, you'll be too much of something for someone because your existing, your existence is too much of something for a lot of people. And so I think I just had to always like force myself to double and triple down and not whittle those things away. Whenever I heard that message, because I've seen far too many women, um, you know, end up, end up in a place where there's nothing left because if they've, they've let everyone, they've taken on all of this constructive feedback of when they're too much. And I remember there was a point last year in our business where it was a little bit of a pivotal moment. We had a new marketing person coming on and you know she was, she was being a little bit like safe in a lot of her messaging of, of the community. And I remember Paul, my business partner, just kind of like you know banging the table and being like, we are not safe. We are not a safe brand. Our brand is too much because Sarah is too much. Every woman in this community is too much. And, um, you know, it's this level of jujitsu that I think you have to have when you're um, an only in an industry or an only in a room um, of, I always say that the answer is the obstacle. Whatever the thing is that is making, that is the problem, that's actually the answer. And if the problem was I was too much. How do I make the answer too much? And I'll tell you this will like code. I can't wait to see the face you're going to make when I say this. One of the best pieces of a career advice I ever got was from Peter Thiel. I know, right? Um, I know, I know. Don't. Excuse me. I think I, I have to find my trash can here. I think I might actually need to vomit. Hold on. Give, give me one second. Okay. And he said, uh, you know, he was just like, and I think it was after one point where there was one of a dozen Twitter mobs after me and it was kind of scary. And he was like, this is all good for you. Embrace and extend, embrace and extend, embrace and extend. And there's just so many times I've said that to myself, but you know, that being said, like your life being in danger is not fun. I feel like I always have to remind people that it's like when I've had to have like armed guards to go with me and my kids to yoga, I'll cap alive. That isn't fun. That's a terrible feeling. It is a terrible feeling that because of doing my job, my life has been in danger and my kid's life has been in danger. Like that, that is something that's extremely fucked up. We need to solve in the world. Not, and, and just because I've managed for that to not silence me does not mean it was acceptable that I had to go through it. Well, and if it happened to you, it's happened to someone else, right? That if, if it's happened to you, 
um, as much of a, a unicorn as you may actually be, Sarah Lacey. The truth is that um, the people who do that to you have done that to others, undoubtedly. Um, others who don't have the unabashed kind of strength, the privilege. intestinal fortitude, the as it were, and, the, and privilege, yeah. you know, so they could have been women of color or men of color for that, for that matter, um, or anything. And, you know, I guess where I, you know, we all, people talk about like, oh, leadership, leadership, everybody gets to be a leader. And the, at the end of the day, not everyone is intended to lead large organizations or large groups of people. And everyone gets to be the leader of their own life. Yeah. To have that 10 out of 10 chairman, chairman me, mm -hmm. right? Who do I get to be in order to be the highest version of myself, the biggest version of myself. And what does that look like? And what does that really look like? Um, standing one's ground in the face of these things, as you've done, without doing it in a way that is, and I'm, I can't wait to hear how you, what you do with this, is uh, without being combative. Let me explain what I mean by that. Someone takes a swing at me. It's likely that I'll bob and weave first, but I'm probably going to take a. I'm gonna, probably going to take a swing back to protect myself if that's necessary. And there's a point where my first, second, and third efforts should be to bob and weave. Like I should be. I'm. I'm looking not to get into the fight. I'm looking to get to the point of friction to find a resolution, and and that means we're going to argue and we're going to disagree but I'm not going to engage in name calling. I'm not going to engage in like the, the mud slinging in the gutter sort of thing. And there's a point in time where you have to speak to people in a language they understand so that they know you heard them. Mm -hmm. How do you navigate between the two of those things? Because of course, you know, as women, right? But someone earlier said, you know, when you are a member of a group that is marginalized in some way, shape or form, whether you like it or not, your actions and behavior reflect on your people, mm -hmm. right? And it's a, it's a responsibility. And we hear about strong women being, they're shrill, they're this, they're that, they're all these different things. How do you navigate that to find your way to that, to that mama bear sense of strength and know when it's time to walk away because that particular fight isn't going to be won? Right. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And I think it's like just acknowledging like it's not easy and like no one, no one, it's like sometimes from the outside, people would always be like, oh, you're, you enjoy this kind of thing. I don't enjoy it. I mean, I, I don't enjoy it. I don't wake up in the morning needing to get in fights with people. Um, you know, I don't enjoy, I didn't enjoy when I was a journalist, like discovering horrible things that were going on in the world and knowing that by reporting that, um, you know, I might be putting my job at danger, or my company at danger, or, you know, in a few cases, my kids in danger. So, you know, it's not fun. I don't enjoy it. I've always seen it as a little bit of like a bug of what I wanted to do for a living and not a feature of it. Um, but I think, you know, it's, it's like anything else. Practice makes you better at it. I mean, I think I was lucky in that it was I was in a job as a woman where it was okay if I pissed people off. And yes, there would be blowback to me that men who in my profession didn't have. But as a journalist, if everyone likes you, you're kind of doing something wrong. 
And so I think the fact that like my job security and my job being done well was not tied to being likable was incredibly liberating for me. And I think that that, you know, also I fortunately are the only thing good about having been the subject of as many fights and Twitter mobs as I've been is that I think the first one happened when I was in my 20s, like when Twitter just started and now 45, I've been doing it for 20 years. And it's like, you re- you learn a few things about that. You learn it's not the end of the world. You learn, hey, you know, I, I walk, Twitter's a loud, noisy room. You have, the, you have the freedom to walk out of that room and close the door. And the rest, of, it feels like it's all consuming, but it isn't. It's just a loud, noisy room. And so I think you just learn when to walk away. You learn that when you did walk away, it blew over. You learn that life still went on. You learn that it wasn't as consuming to everyone else as it felt to you. Um, you know, you learn that at the end of the day, all you can do is like put your work out there as a journalist, you know, as I was at the time as a journalist, build the best stuff you can. Um, and people, people are going to hate you. People are going to like you. You can't control that. I mean, I think so much of it is just like letting go of the control of that and not tying your self-worth to likability because likability is just a toxic, toxic trap for women. Um, and well, it doesn't it also come from, I mean, if I'm, you know, a lot of the work that I have done, you know, over the years myself is around that, you know, realizing, coming to realize how identified I was with wanting and on some level needing approval, mm-hmm. right, from from other people, that feeling like I wasn't enough, feeling that, or too much, too much or enough, but never just right. Right. You know, that I'm either too much in a room or I'm not enough or that people are going to think I'm a fraud or a fail, whatever the case may be, that it really, it really all comes back down to how I feel about myself. Yeah. And you know what? We like, I don't care how successful you are and I don't care like how healthy you are. We all have those feelings. Like we all have those feelings. Why? Because like, are we evolved from cavemen and our conscious brain is trying to keep us alive. And so it overly pattern recognizes negative things. It blows up in your mind, anything that it perceives to be a threat to your survival. It works to divide us from each other. It's like, there are all these things that are in the neuroscience of how our brain works that make us feel like that. Because your brain doesn't necessarily want you to feel good about yourself. It wants you to survive. And I think it's a matter of just being really mindful and recognizing that and like, you know, learning to edit your own story. Like, okay, thanks brain. That's the first draft of this. Let's actually make a list and see if that's true. Does everyone hate me? No. Does everyone think, have I actually achieved stuff? Well, yes. Like it is like that sort of stepping back and questioning the story that your brain is giving you because your brain is going to magnify what that one asshole in a meeting said to you, not what the 10 people who were nice said. I have a very dear friend who's an incredibly successful designer who says, I can walk into a room there can, be, there can be 500 people in the room. 499 of those people talk about my designs and how they great they are and what a great guy I am and how much I've supported them and all of that. And there's one person standing in the corner and looking at me with the sideways stink eye. And they're like, yeah, you're all right. Which person do you think I think about? Not just him, all of us. That is what yes. we evolved to do. That is what our brains yeah. evolved to do. That is why we're still here. So it's your job to, you know, if you consider... Um, 
you know, all of the things around you and all of your skills and all of your attributes to kind of be like the board of directors or the team for the chairman of you, you know, your conscious brain is just one of those. And you can limit how much of the feedback of that team member you take. <laughs> Can't fire I've, them. I've, but. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing, you know, I, I, there's so many different, um, there's so many different, it's almost like pain right? That, that pain is the body's signal to pay attention to something. When you're working out and you get a cramp, you want to, you know, breathe into it, stretch something. Pain is the signal to slow down to, you know, that something it either needs strengthening or needs care, that these emotional pains, these, you know, discomforts, if you will, also known as the committee of voices that kind of line up over here and they're like, hey, you, or, oh, I don't know. I've got a really sarcastic one. I've got a really, really mean one. I've got a super judgmental one. And, you know, I've got a, you know, another kind of nerdy one and they all, and they're there and they squawk. But now when they arise, it's more of a, wow, that's really interesting that this is the moment that you're choosing to show up. What's this right. actually right? About? And it's like this idea. I had a yoga teacher once who would say, I'm super un unflexible, like metaphorically, I'm very flexible in terms of actual yoga. I am not. And she would just be like, that's okay. It just means there's a short commute for you. <laughs> like, it's like when you hit up about those things, it's like that's been your short commute to the thing that you need to work on. Um, and so, yeah, I love that sort of analogy about like the discomfort. Um, but yeah, it is that thing of, you know, I always tell my kids, it's like, if they have a bully at school, it's like, what is re like what is really the person the reason this person is doing this like what does it say about them and like how do you like sort of pull back and not because it's it's really not about you when someone's bullying you it's really about them and um there's a long period of time where my kids rolled my ro rolled their eyes when I said that same way I did when my mom said it to me but then there was this beautiful moment for all of my kids insecurities and things they deal with my both of my children especially my eldest one are incredibly vain about their appearance they both think they're and they are beautiful but they know they are like um and there was a bully once who was listing all of the things that were horrible horrible about them and they were starting to get kind of destabilized about it and he said and you're ugly and it broke the spell and they just both started laughing and eli said this is a problem with you and then they turned and walked off and i always think about that when those voices show up like the other one you didn't mention like the body shaming voice like this is a problem with you. And then you just kind of turn and walk off. Yeah, I send them over. I send them down to the children's table for milk and cookies and tell them that they can come back when they're ready to talk like a grown up. <laughs> See, you are a mother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you're ready to be a mature adult, you can come back. But in the meantime, thank you for your contribution. The milk and cookies mm -hmm. are over there. Go on over there. So I I would love, I, I, because your, your children are such a monumental part of your life um, and and they've played such a critical role in the evolution of Sarah, really the 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 mama bear that has come out in you, the ferocity with which you you stand for your children. Um, I think it is a, a, a great last topic for yeah, us to touch on. Yeah, hopefully you have an so hour. You mentioned you have it's a, impossible for me to talk about them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we could talk about them for the rest of the day. Um, well, and it's okay. The next guest is a little bit late, so we've got right. a few more minutes. Um, so you have these two remarkable children. Um, they could not be more different um, in a magical, magical way. And you mentioned that one of your children is transgender. Um, 
I would love for you to talk a little bit about, you know, I, I've always known you to be an ally, right? So you actually knew me before my, before I came out, like you've actually known me through a whole lot of evolutions of my life. Um, I've always known you to be an ally. You've always been someone who doesn't just stand for herself, but you stand for those who don't have a voice or whose voices you feel are being marginalized. That's just kind of part and parcel of who you are. What was that experience like for you? Because this is this is a big thing. There's no manual. There's no handbook. Um, what was that experience like for you, and what's it been like navigating it? Well, that is definitely something that I cannot answer in a few minutes. Um, let me let me take a stab at it, though. Um, you know, I grew up in um, a Southern evangelical white household. Um, I um, grew up uh, with a brother who was gay, who has lifelong mental health and addiction and depression issues because of growing up in that household. So um, I didn't need Donald Trump to see where that gets us as a world. Um, That was a daily masterclass I had in my house. Um, I had an amazing moment. It was in the middle of the pandemic and it was after I had gotten my vaccine. Kids hadn't yet. We have a house in Palm Springs and a house in San Francisco, and we were going back and forth between the two. And um, our car broke down. And so I was like, you know what? Fuck it. We're just going to get on a plane. First plane we've gotten on in you know a year plus. And so I got on a plane with my kids. We flew in. We landed in San Francisco at the brand new Harvey Milk Terminal, which is just gorgeous. And um, we're like the only ones in the airport. This is still kind of in the pandemic when no one's flying. And we're just all sort of giddy because we've actually gotten to San Francisco in an hour, not eight hours. And it's been a crazy day. And I'm walking through the airport with my kids and we're looking at the story of Harvey Milk's life. And we're just pausing and we're talking about it and reflecting. And we're talking about the role that San Francisco as a place has played in so many social movements in the world. And Eli um, just looked at me and said, I think it's amazing that you moved here before you even knew me. And it was, it was really this moment that made me just pause and reflect. And there's so much about Eli and my connection, my sort of honor in being Eli's mom that always feels very cosmic and supernatural to me. And I think it does tie back to when I was a kid, the younger sister of my brother there was nothing I could do to protect him, but there's everything in the world I can do to protect Eli. And I do every day. And there's something that's very healing about being able to do that. And, um, you know, I think both of my kids in so many ways have made me a better person, but particularly, I think everyone who gets, who is lucky enough to get Eli in their life becomes a better person as a result. Um, she's just an incredible, incredible child who is not an activist, is not, um, does not want to be an activist, does not want to be out there, is very private. Um, but her existence in a world that where people get power and money by othering her and trying to make her feel terrible about herself has has made her an activist in her own way. And her her belief that she is, not only she knows who she is, despite all that, but has a right to be who she is that no one can take away from her, I just think is is the most amazing thing to get to live with every moment of every day. And people talk about how ferocious I can be. I, I mean, Evie, my younger daughter, is like me, concentrate. People talk about um, my sense that I'm entitled to be who I am and the courage in being that. Eli is concentrate of that. 
I mean, I have these two kids who are in so many ways, the most concentrated version of everything good and strong about me. And Evie goes through the world and you see her from a mile away and she's emanating power. And Eli goes through the world and you see her from a mile away and she is emanating beauty. And while they're, you're right, they're so different. They're so complimentary. And in that too, I feel like they're such a model for me. Um, they're just, you know, I, I don't, I don't know why I was lucky enough to sort of be the, the person who was able to bring them in the world, but there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that whatever they do in life will really be my biggest contribution. I'll bet you'd like to hear the entire conversation with Sarah. Good news, you can. In fact, you can hear all of the full-length versions of the episodes that came from the Unleashed Leadership Summit. Just head over to UnleashedLeadershipSummit.com and snare yourself some access with the Gold VIP Package. You'll get access to all the interviews and may even get a little bonus. In the meantime, have you clicked the subscribe button yet? I mean, come on, what are you waiting for? This is good stuff. Go ahead, do it. <laughs>